If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, so great to have you tune in to this episode of Green Dreamer. I wanted to let you know that I set up a Patreon goal that we're aiming to meet as soon as possible in order to keep the show going. So if you've listened to at least a few episodes, have learned from us and wish to continue doing so, and if you're not struggling financially, of course, or a new listener just checking the show out, please become a patron today starting at $2 per month so we can keep Green Dreamer podcast alive and open and accessible for for everyone. To join us on Patreon, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support. And thank you so much to our current and past supporters. There's this sense, I think, of anyone who wants to do social work, there's this tension between self and other that has to go away for you to be really effective in your work. And you have to be willing at times to let other people take the lead. You have to be willing at times to acknowledge other people's contributions, and you still get to do your work, so to speak, whatever you're good at. And so I, I think that ability to have a centered place within that's based on a, a ongoing practice of meditation, mindfulness, is essential to working with other people to get things done. That was Jerry Udelson, an engineer and author of 12 professional books in the field of green building and sustainable design, including his latest one titled The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir. Jerry was actually one of the creators of the very first Earth Day back in 1970, so I was really excited to get his perspectives on how the environmental movement has evolved and what we can learn from the past decades. So we're going to chat about his experience as a longtime environmental activist, how he sees the relationship between spirituality, mindfulness and sustainability, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles, so I'm basically a city kid, and my father was never an outdoorsman of any kind. But I do remember that I was very attracted to astronomy as a, a young teen, and I used to spend a lot of evenings out stargazing with a, a very small telescope that my uncle had given me, and, and I got very interested in sort of how things worked, you know, how planets moved, how the Earth stood in relationship to everything. But it wasn't really until I was in college and began to spend more time outdoors, began to be affected by the pollution of the times, which in Los Angeles, when I was growing up, it was one day out of every two was unhealthy air. So if you can imagine, you don't have any choice about breathing, and there it was. And so when I would exercise, particularly in college, I was a college athlete, I remember that my, my lungs would ache for hours after a workout from the air pollution. So I was an engineering student in college, and, and I got very interested through one of my professors in water pollution control. And so I started down this path of my studies and my personal life, always wanting to figure out, well, what could I do to help clean up the environment? And I think that was the, the real motivation, really didn't come till I was in college and I began to get more political in my orientation and register voters in the black precincts of Pasadena, because I went to Caltech and began to really understand there was a lot more at stake here than just my personal life. And so that eventually led to Earth Day, the first Earth Day, and, and a lot of things came from that. So you're one of the creators of the first Earth Day in 1970. Can you take us back to that time? What sparked this initial organizing to happen? And what do you think it was that was able to propel the movement's growth into the global awareness event that it's become today? Well, you know, the real catalyst was the extensive pollution all over the U.S. of the waterways, um, in Cleveland, the Cuyahoga River was on fire from time to time because of all the oil and grease that had been dumped in by various industries. And in California, we had the largest oil spill at that time in U.S. history in Santa Barbara. And so because it happened near a major city, it was a big news event. And those kind of things in the late 60s drove people to want to do something. And a senator from Wisconsin, Gaylord Nelson, was a real environmentalist and decided to create a teach-in, which at that time had been used primarily for opposition to the Vietnam War to educate people about what was going on. So he called for this teach-in, and he hired a Harvard grad student named Dennis Hayes to set up an organization. He went out and raised the money. And that organization renamed the event Earth Day. So it gave it kind of a memorable name, took out a full page ad in the New York Times and just said everybody should focus on this one day in April, the 22nd, and have a teach-in, a political demonstration and so forth. And at this time, the Vietnam War was raging. So there were protests 
all the time in cities and towns and on campuses. But for Earth Day, people kind of came together around wanting to find out what can we do to control pollution, to reduce it, and so forth. So that was both a political demonstration and a teach-in. It was an educational event and a political event. Well, you know, politicians don't have a lot of practical skills, but one of them is they can count. And when 20 million people turned out for the first Earth Day, the people in Congress took notice. In fact, something like 250 members of Congress were out giving speeches on Earth Day so they could see the crowds with their own eyes. And so in the next five years, it doesn't sound dramatic, but in the next five years, basically we created at both state and federal level almost all of the environmental protections that we enjoy today. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, on and on and on, because there was this spirit of the times of let's fix things. And of course, with Congress, it's always like, well, let's fix things once and for all, but it's never that simple. But that one event, Earth Day, really catalyzed the environmental movement. Many people like myself decided to become full-time environmental activists, whatever that might mean. And it had a lot of political and social momentum that made things happen rather quickly in five years in a congressional framework is rather quickly, particularly with all of the different laws that had to be enacted. And because I lived in California, we also had a California Environmental Quality Act that was passed in 1970. Interesting enough, that was signed by Governor Ronald Reagan, and the national laws were signed into law by President Richard Nixon, both Republicans. So there was a bipartisan spirit at the time, which is pretty much absent today. But that made things work. So the fact that millions of people coming together to make a statement led to political changes for the years to come. Do you think we hold that same power today when we get out into the streets, for example, for the climate marches? Well, you know, the answer is the shorter answer is yes. The longer answer is it's a bit more complicated because air pollution you could see, water pollution you could see, disappearing salmon runs in the Northwest you could see if you were a fisherman. And the real problem today with climate change is it's so much harder to point to one thing or another as, well, we have to fix this or that. The fact is we have to fix a lot of things in a very short period of time. And so it's a much bigger challenge. But yes, I think we do have the power to do that. And and it's happening worldwide. So that's even more dramatic, because a lot of the energy around the first Earth Day was limited to the United States. But now it's a global movement. And we have social media to spread things quickly. And so yeah, we have the power to do this. It, It is a matter of coming together and focusing. And obviously there's an election this year that's pretty important in determining how things are going to go for the next five to 10 years, literally. So 50 years after you co-created Earth Day, you published your new book, The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir. Can you share when spirituality came to be a big part of your life? So what happened is I met a young woman as 
an environmental activist. I had moved to Santa Cruz in Northern California and was teaching environmental studies at the university there. And I met a young woman and we became a couple. And she had a very strong spiritual interest. And it really wasn't my thing, but obviously she had an influence on me. And so we began to explore around. We did TM. You know, I, I couldn't meditate if the world depended on it. You know, I couldn't sit for three or four minutes even. And you know, I was restless. And we kept looking and looking. And because we lived in the Bay Area at that time, there were so many spiritual teachers who came through from India and Tibet and Japan and everywhere else that, you know, we would go to different events and we would try to understand what was going on. And nothing really took hold. But one day, about four years after Earth Day, somebody told me to go see this spiritual teacher, Swami Muktananda, who had just arrived on his second world tour and was living in Oakland, you know. And so for me, it was, gee, I only have to drive for 30 or 40 minutes across the Bay Bridge to go see him. Yeah, why not? Let's do it. And so the first time I met him, I was totally mesmerized. He had this quality of energy and peace all together, very energetic, very dramatic gestures and all this. But behind that, you could see he was completely peaceful. And it just, it, it made an impression on me. And so we went back over and over again. Then we started to go into his lectures. And a few months later, I went to a retreat over July 4th weekend and received initiation into meditation. And instead of being able to sit for two or three minutes and, you know, then starting to plan my activities, you know, sitting but not really being peaceful or quiet inside, all of a sudden, the very first morning, I could sit for an hour without any thoughts. And I have, as I describe in the book, these amazing experiences, out-of-the-body experiences of revelation and all of a sudden, I had a path. Now, I wasn't totally sold on it. And in fact, Swami Muktananda used to say, you know, don't believe anything I say. Just do what I tell you to do. Sit for meditation every day for an hour and see if something happens for you. And then you can decide later if I'm the right teacher. So that's how it began. And I've been practicing that form of meditation ever since 1974. In fact, July 4th was the date I received initiation. So for me, that day is always my personal Independence Day, as well as the country's Independence Day. So it's easy to remember, uh, and it was very dramatic. But just meditating doesn't change you. What changes you is starting to get a new idea about yourself and trying to understand, well, how does this inner work go together with outer work? How do I bring this sense of wholeness and peacefulness that you experience during meditation? How do I bring that into my work? And that's when the struggle begins because it wasn't the way I was raised and it wasn't the way I preferred to act in the world. 
But all of a sudden, there was this new dynamic in my life, and so I had to gradually come to terms with it. As the synopsis of your book reads, of you, he struggles over many years to integrate these disparate worlds for the betterment of himself and the environment. End quote. There is definitely an overlap I feel between environmental stewardship and spirituality. You know, both require the practice of transcending our care and senses of self beyond our immediate physical bodily self. But as you immerse yourself fully into these two worlds of spirituality and the environmental movement, what did you find disparate about them, and how did you then bring them together? Well, you know, there's always that. Three-letter word: the ego that gets in the way, and so the ego always wants you to be noticed. It wants you to be highly regarded. It wants you to be number one. Like I was the oldest child in my family, so I always felt special, right, because of that. <laughs> so your your spiritual work is to try to get rid of that, or as Muktananda used to say, to have. A different kind of ego, which is I am the same. I am one with everything, and so that sense of being one with creation takes you right back into the environment. And I began to see that I could be an activist. I could work with politicians and business people to make things happen. So I was very big into renewable energy at the time, solar power. And we were trying to make a, a solar industry in California when I worked for Governor Jerry Brown, and so I began to see. Well, if I can take this sense of wholeness and the integrated self out of the quiet room of meditation and take it into my work, I could actually get lots of people to work with me, and I could be more successful than if I tried to be. The king, so to speak, of all this stuff, and so there's this there's this sense I think of anyone who wants to do social work. There's this tension between self and other that has to go away for you to be really effective in your work, and you have to be willing at times to let other people take the lead. You have to be willing at times to acknowledge other people's contributions, and you still get to do your work. So to speak, whatever you're good at, and so I, I think that ability to have a centered place within that's based on a, a ongoing practice of meditation, mindfulness, is essential to working with other people to get things done. And so that's why I think those two worlds actually, for me, began to come together. And it wasn't like it happened overnight. It was. It's it's an interplay. It's a dynamic between your sense of yourself as a you know an intellect and as a activist or whatever you you call yourself, and the need of other people to do the work with you. And so it it, it doesn't sound dramatic, but it's as I point out in in the epilogue to the book when I'm talking to a young climate activist, maybe like yourself. You know, it's like if you really look at it objectively, the most effective political movements of the 20th century were based on respect for your opponents, 
when you talk about Gandhi in India overthrowing the entire British Empire through nonviolent protests, or Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in the U.S., or Martin Luther King Jr., or Nelson Mandela in South Africa. It was all based on, yes, we have opponents, but they're not our enemies. And that, I think, is a crucial distinction. And that's why Mandela was able to create these truth and reconciliation commissions where people had to own up to their bad deeds, but they weren't ostracized from the new society. They were, their skills and their talents were needed. And so I think as we go through this effort to deal with you know, the bad things that have been done by oil companies and other people, is that you have to remember that the oil companies were doing stuff that we all wanted. We all wanted gas for our cars. We all wanted natural gas for our homes. You know, we all wanted this nice, convenient lifestyle, even after we knew that there was a planetary problem. And so I think that's something that everyone has to be honest about. At the same time, we also know there were some very bad things done over the last 30 years when we began to know about climate change, but really didn't begin to do much about it until the Obama years. In my own studies of mindfulness, I've learned the practice of being fully present to being aware of the here and now in a non-judgmental and non-striving manner. Most other living beings have their consciousness of the world, most or all of the time, more or less, being fully present. So part of what does make us unique as humans is our ability to extensively dwell in the past in our memories or to transport our minds into the future with our imagination. But at the same time, our abilities to be fully present may have been compromised because of all the distractions we have around us and so many things fighting for our attention. Like we know for a fact that our attention span has decreased. And many people, when just starting to practice mindfulness, like when I started out and still today, we find it hard to not have our minds wander you know, to be fully present. So I'm wondering if you think our collective dissociation from Mother Nature, along with how that's reflected in our actions and dominant Western culture, is there a relationship between that and our fading abilities to be present and mindful? Well, certainly the cultural spirit of the times is to be distracted. You know, we have screen time. I have a screen time monitor on my iPhone and I, I watch it. But I think the issue of being distracted is really because people don't have a practice of non-distraction. They don't have a sitting practice of any kind. And so there's not much to rely on when 
you have all these distractions. I mean, I don't watch television. That's one of the things, one of the tools I use. It doesn't mean I shouldn't. It just means I don't because the whole purpose of television is to keep you distracted long enough to watch the commercials, right? So the the issue I think is still going to come down to if you're going to deal with other people over the long term from a standpoint of a mental health, your own and theirs, you're going to have to come at it from a standpoint, as you described, of non-judgmental, being present. And how do you do that if you don't have a sitting practice, if you don't have a way each day to go within, be with yourself, watch how your mind works, etc. And there's somebody once wrote that all the evils in the world come because of people's inability to sit quietly by themselves. And so I do think that a meditation practice is essential for anyone who wants to do this work over the long haul or some practice, whether it's forest bathing, spending time in nature, spending time at the seashore. I live two miles from the ocean, so it's easy to spend or you used to be <laughs> right now difficult to spend time at the seashore but something that grounds you in nature. And, and this is not a new idea. I mean, one of my first big influences was Gary Snyder, the poet, and the work that he did in integrating Buddhist philosophy and theology with environmental awareness, which goes back to that first Earth Day. Everyone has known that you have to have this experience of nature, or you go a bit crazy. And I think that is what we see with a lot of our national leaders, that they don't spend time outdoors. They don't spend time with themselves. And so you get a little demented, I think, if you just watch television or go on social media or count how many likes you got on a Facebook post it kind of makes you a little crazy. And so it's hard to bring something healthy to other people. And that's what I think we need to do as activists, as people engaged with trying to create a more sustainable world, is we have to bring our healthy selves to other people as well and support their evolution, support their willingness to change by modeling the kind of behavior and the kind of values that we think are, are important. As one of the key learning lessons from your book, you offer a cautionary tale of how lofty ideals often fail when confronted by the real world of business, politics, technology, economics, and government, end quote. This sounds quite spot on regarding where we often find ourselves, you know, having these beautiful visions of what could be that we long for, but then often very quickly we're taken back to the reality of our existence within these unjust power structures and systems that seem to be locked down. I hope our listener will check out your book for the full scoop, but what do you hope we will take away from this conversation regarding how we can work towards the world we wish for ourselves with these reality checks constantly in mind? Well, I, I think everyone has to answer that question for themselves, but, but it's at some point you have to say, do I really need this, you know, my fifth trip to Paris? <laughs> do 
do I really need, I mean, I'm a vegetarian, almost vegan, and I have been that way since I met my meditation teacher. I eat lower on the food chain. Does that help? Sure. But it's not for everyone. And so you have to say, well, what do I need to keep myself alive and healthy? Maybe I could cut back on X, Y, or Z. There's, there has to be a sense of fulfillment that comes from within for anyone to start down this path, because you won't last very long if you don't feel fulfilled with less. And so I think the story of more, which is a wonderful book and well-documented, is, is worth reading because we each have to ask ourselves, do I need to drive as much? Do I need to live in the suburbs and have a job downtown that forces me to commute? You know, we begin to ask, because I can't afford to live downtown is usually the, the answer, but we need to ask, what's my purpose here? And it's going to be different for everybody. I think the hardest thing to do is to ask somebody else to give up something while you're not. And I think that's the challenge for anyone who wants to be active in, in these issues, young or old, is what am I willing to give up? What am I willing to change so that I can be a model? Because ultimately, people watch what you're doing. And they all, you know, whether it's your parent and your kids are watching you all the time to see whether you live your values in, a, in the real world, or you're an older person and other older people are still watching you, how you work, how you live, because everyone talks to everybody else. And ultimately, this dialogue, which is our, our culture, is going to have to change and change dramatically. And so that, to me, is where individual actions, even if it's just going to the farmer's market, even if it's just growing, like I, I, I have a very small yard and I can't grow food in it the way it's set up, but I can have these little container plants so i'm growing cucumbers and tomatoes and lettuce and every few days i'll go out and harvest a, a salad from what i've grown and it's really a delightful feeling it's not changing the food system of the world but it's a start and i eat organically and and so you have to decide a sense of priorities can i somehow support climate strikers even if it's just through donations to their various organizations, can I recycle? Even if I know that the recycling is kind of moribund right now because of the problems with China is not taking our stuff. So I think every one of us has to make those choices, but ultimately it becomes your lifestyle and people do notice your lifestyle. And I think that's, that's how societies change. And the problem we have today, of course, is our need to change our basic culture is so evident that, but we don't have the time to do it the way the cultures have always changed historically, which is for old people to die out and young people to do new things. We just don't have that much time to, to waste, so to speak. And we have wasted 30 years of warnings since the first climate change. We've wasted 20 years since Al Gore put on his famous slideshow 
an inconvenient truth because it is really inconvenient to have to change our core assumptions and our core habits and beliefs because it challenges our sense of who we are. And so that's why, again, why I think that a practice of meditation and mindfulness, which allows you to change your sense of who you are so that you can more easily accommodate these other changes is so essential. And finally, as we speak, we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, which has caused a lot of tragic loss for so many, as well as a lot of financial and personal anxiety for people who've lost their jobs and whose livelihoods have been disrupted. But with this inevitable reality we're in right now, what do you think we can learn from this crisis to better equip ourselves with our need to deal with the impending crisis of climate change and ecological degradation? So that's a great question. I, I, I wrote an op-ed for the local San Diego paper, and I sort of addressed that. And I think there are some positive things that we can take from this. Obviously, this is a huge challenge like the Great Depression 90 years ago. But one thing we have learned, the Great Depression, everyone's pretty much left to their own devices. There was no social safety net. There wasn't a rich country like we have today that can pass out $3 trillion of money and put 7 or $8 trillion of financial support behind it. But we have to, we have learned that we have the power to do things collectively that we would not have imagined three months ago. And I think that's important to realize. We would not have imagined that, you know, 90% of our fellow citizens would agree to a lockdown and would agree to wear masks in public. Sure, there's always a bunch of people out there that is, I'm not going to do that. But most people have said, yes, for the collective good, I will make major changes. I will take in some suffering into my life. And it is not easy, as the Great Depression wasn't. I mean, there were bankers jumping out of windows committing suicide during the stock market crash. We haven't seen that today. Everybody kind of feels that we'll get through this somehow. But there's a, a collective sense of mission and a willingness to follow science so, up on the part of politicians, which is something pretty new, you know, because most politicians in the U.S. are not scientists. They're business people, they're um, lawyers, and a few doctors here and there, but there's very few people trained in science or even engineering. Very different than in China, by the way. In China, most of the leaders have actually been trained in science and engineering before they're put into party posts. So at least they have some appreciation for it. So all of a sudden, we, we've learned how to act collectively. We've learned to at least act on the basis of science, in this case, epidemiology. and We've learned that our fellow citizens are actually pretty reliable. And we've learned how to thank each other for showing up. When I go to a grocery store, I thank the people there for being willing to help me get my food. And they appreciate it. And they are there. So this sense of being willing to work as a group is really, I think, a very hopeful sign that we can, in fact, address, as you say, climate change, biodiversity loss, 
and the other issues that are going to define whether the next several decades for younger people are going to be livable. And I think that's the issue today is, is it even going to be livable, not just for us, but for billions of people around the world? Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Jerry's work and check out his latest book, The Godfather of Green, you can head to www.jerryudelson.net and you can also follow him on Facebook at jerry.udelson and on Twitter at jerryudelson. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today for everything that you've contributed to the movement for these past decades and for sharing your greatest insights and learning lessons with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Never, ever give up. You were listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, I would love to have your direct support on Patreon at greendreamer.com support so that I can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone. Patreon is where our guests' final five tips, personal mantras, and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on, alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well. So if you're able to join starting from $2 per month, again, it's greendreamer.com support. Today's song feature is Yarrow by Kim Anderson. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. The grass beneath the trees scattered with the first autumn leaves I feel a great release I am part of all I see Shadows fall and cover me